Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that you have granted us access any time, any moment, any place through the finished work of your son and the faith that you granted us to believe in him. We can walk in your presence here on a Wednesday night with a good group of people gathered together, circled up, pleading with you, Lord, and you're hearing our prayers. What an amazing thing. And we thank you for that, Lord. Father, we do have heavy hearts when we look at the state of humanity. In one way, Lord, it shouldn't surprise us. The Bible says men will grow worse and worse in latter days. And yet, Lord, I think we're most hurt is the state of the church. They've abandoned the all-sufficient word of God. They've twisted and turned it and make it work for them, Lord, versus what you've really said. And the church is not walking with you. And so we have no light in many lighthouses. And so we pray that the church would repent of its evils, turning away from a God that gave us all-sufficient word for everything for life and godliness, that you would bring the church to repentance. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you have all things in your control. And so we pray for our government it's moving quickly away from the principles they were founded on. We pray for our national and local leaders, Lord. We thank you for a governor here in Florida. We pray that he knows you. If he doesn't, we pray you would save him. But thank you for the kindness he has shown the churches in Florida. And we ask that you bless him for that, Lord. We pray that we would be a lighthouse here, both to our neighbors and to local officials, Lord, that they would know there's something different about Riverbend. Uh, we won't compromise, but we love you. And so, Lord, help us as we take that godly, biblical stand. Lord, thanks for each and every one that's here. We're so glad to see their faces, Lord. Now bless us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 22 will be the verse we'll start in. We're going to finish the chapter 7 here, and then next week work our way into 8. Um, I sure enjoy studying this book. I, I never thought I would love it as much as I did, as much as I do, and so I, I hope you're enjoying it as well. And we've just been working our way through the sacrifices. If you've not been with us or you want to catch up, I was gone for a few weeks. We've been working our way through the sacrifices and seeing um, all this wonderful foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each and one, each and every one of the sacrifices, we see the the picture of the coming Messiah, of his work on the cross, his atoning work. And we see it in grain offerings and wave offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and burn offerings and so forth. Each and every one of them, we've seen Christ more clearly. When we get to the end of verse 7 here, or excuse me, chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 22 tonight, we start to see here where um, he's kind of cleaning up some thoughts to those to all those sacrifices. And so that's where we're going to jump off with. And with just five short thoughts here this morning. Number one, or this evening, true worship comes from our inward being, our innermost being. True worship comes from our innermost being. Look at verses 22 and through 25 with me. Follow along, Leviticus chapter 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also, the fat of an animal which dies or the fat of an animal torn by a beast may be put to any other use, but you shall certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. Well, most likely because of how often the term fat and, and throughout these sacrifices that we've seen have been spoken of, God gives a, a little bit more instruction here to help them understand how important this is to him. You always find fat and blood together in the sacrifices. God always talks about those together. They both have great meaning to them, and they're always connected in those instructions. And notice in verse 23 that the, from the ox, the sheep, the goat, it covers all the classes of sacrifices that we've seen. In each sacrifice, we were told to bring a bull or, or they were told to bring a sheep. 
um, or an ox or a goat of some sort. So here we know this is the fat from all the animals that are to be offered. Now, throughout the law, fat is forbidden to eat. You can see that in this text very clearly. It is always, fat is always to be devoted to God through fire. And I believe the Lord is teaching the nation uh, what is given to him should be devoted to him. And there's a great lesson here. What you give to the Lord, don't pull it back. (laughs) Right? I mean, this covers so many things in our life. Can you think of things that you stood and said to God? I mean, think of a million different things, from, from our own marriage vows to what we say we'll give to the Lord, whatever that may be, as we see in the Scriptures, we are not to give something to the God and to bring it back. And so the Lord's teaching here in the nation that if you're going to give me something, it's mine. It's not yours to do with as you please. Now, the principle certainly holds true for us in many ways. And whatever is given to the Lord should be left at his disposal. There's a great example of this. I think we know that. Go to Acts chapter 4. Here you have the early church. That uh, is, God's just doing amazing things. They're not well established yet. There's not elders in every place. There's still apostles that are leading the church. But God's doing mighty things, and people are getting saved, and they're becoming uh, very united together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we'll pick it up there and read for a little bit here. Because the Bible teaches us what you give to the Lord, you need to give to the Lord. Don't pull that back. Verse 32, because and and, and, you think, well, that's Old Testament, Scott, you know. Well, wait a minute. Look what happens here. The congregation of those who believe were of one heart, verse 32, Acts chapter 4, and soul. Isn't that beautiful? I think that God still wants that from Riverbend. One heart, one soul. That means all of us confessing sin, walking with God so we can be united. Sin always brings disunity, Right? Love of Christ, confession of sin, repenting, turning from him, brings us together. So look, they're at one heart, one soul together. And look at this. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. We'll go in, we can go into that another day. But there's, <laughs> they are outcast. The first century church were outcast. The 21st century church is going to be outcast here shortly, right? Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. That's the gospel right there. And abundant grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. This is how united they were. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, the Levite, the Cyprian of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas, first mention of Brother Barnabas. And notice, you'll see what he's called by the apostles, which was translated son of encouragement. Any Barnabases in here? We need Barnabases in the church. You cannot have a church without Barnabases or Barnabasettes. <laughs> we gotta have them, right? I hope that's your gift, to encourage one another. There's Barnabas. And, and notice he, he puts his money where his mouth is, and who owned, uh, who owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A little bad chapter break. Sometimes they put chapters because they were getting too long here. That's, 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 the chapter breaks are not inspired. But notice the first word of the next text. What's it say? <laughs> but, oh no, here we go. <laughs> Here goes the breaking of unity, right? Sin gets in the camp. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge, they did this together, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Man, you could hear a pin drop in that room. Why has he, why does this happen? And keep back some of the price of the lamb. While, while it remained unsold, did you not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? 
Why is it that you have conceived, notice that term James talks about the conceiving of sin in your heart, conceive this deed in your heart. And you have lied to men, not, you've not lied to men, but to God. And you know the rest of the story. Ananias falls down, breathes his last. Young men carry him out in verse 6. And about three hours later, because she didn't get the text, I haven't heard from him for a while, <laughs> bringing it in a new, into this era. She comes wandering in. And such, such clarity here of what God thinks of when you make a, uh, a choice to vow to God, to give something to God, and don't follow it out. Look at this. Why is it, verse 8, that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to test? Such graphic dis, uh, display of writing here, right? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell off her feet and breathed her last. On your way back to Leviticus, it is just a strong reminder that God has reserved things for himself. And as you look in verse 24, even the fat of a dead animal was not to be used from personal purposes. He, he doesn't want that misused. He wants that particular fat. We'll talk about that in a minute. Why? So God has set a claim on this fat here in Leviticus chapter 7. And you say, why this particular, particular item? Why this particular piece of fat? And we've talked about this in before. There's... There's fat that grows up among the or organs there, and it's excellent. It's, it's the best part of the animal. Well, first you must understand this fat is located in the innermost part of the animal. So I don't think it's difficult here to understand at least, I mean, there's, and there's several other reasons, but at least to understand that the significance of this innermost desire of God for the innermost person, for the, the heart of the person or the innermost part of the person is God wants that. He's not asking for your kidney fat. Some of us have a little more of that than others. He's asking for your inner being. He wants that. He does not want it shared with dead things. He wants it shared with him. Truly, this reveals the heart of the one bringing the sacrifice. Am I willing to take the best of what God has given me and give it back to him? Instead of making that for myself. I think, well, I don't think I would imagine that the godly Hebrews knew that they needed to spend this on God. And if you were a godly Hebrew, you, you would see this as, God, this is a joy to give to you. Because you have made a way for me to be right with you. You've made a way for me to be right with the God on the mountain that's full of fire and smoke and, and all the things that we're afraid of. You've, made, you've become approachable now through this sacrifice. And I give it to you because I want that relationship. And I think if you notice in verse 25, the command is somewhat repeated here because there's such a temptation to keep things that belong to God. But notice the penalty Notice the penalty of, of saying to God that I'm going to do this and give you this, this complete excommunication from God's holy people. I'll tell you the seriousness about what God says. It really is connected to the gospel in so many ways. The gospel is the most precious thing, and it is our heart that has been changed. And God wants that. And so we should not take lightly when we say that we give our heart to the Lord. I believe this teaches us the awfulness of sin as well. And someone might say, well, I didn't give a fat. What's the big deal? And you think that's some kind of small thing. And I think sin is just so easily dismissed. It's very easily dismissed in today's society. I think this is the problem with the church today. Oh, that book's archaic. Do we really going to hold to that view of marriage you know, or whatever else they're attacking nowadays. And so the church dismisses things. Leaders are not obeying, and listen to this, Jesus' words to church discipline. They're not obeying it. 
We've had it happen here where sadly had to go through church discipline. They go to another church. We call the church and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't believe in that stuff. All right, you don't believe what Jesus says. Is that what you're telling me? See, it's easy to dismiss this, and, and God's serious about this stuff. Now, if God has chosen us, think about this, if he's chosen us to make us his holy temple, right? And he, he has his spirit continually dwelling in us, shouldn't we examine even the smallest things in our life? This is why prayer and confession and repentance are still very much part of what we do daily. When's the last time you said, God, help me turn from this? Right? That's repentance. Help me turn from this. It has a hold of my heart. It wants me. Help me to turn from this. And so I think we have a glorious view of God when I study this. Um, and, and again, for many, many years, reading through the book of Leviticus and my daily reading, um, you kind of go through this section maybe a little faster to get to another book. But then you begin to see this glorious, gracious God who is Old Testament God. And sometimes in our mind we think there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. He does not change. This is our same God. So then you look at this and you go, oh my goodness, this fat is really important to him. And it's got to be more than just a chunk of meat there. It must be something greater. It must be my inner heart that he's looking at. He wants that. And he's so glorious that we should look at sin and its hideousness and realize we're dealing with a, a holy God. And so whether sin is great or small in our eyes, we need to discover these things and walk with God. We should view God's word as coming directly from him, right? When you read your Bible, God's talking to you. This is the voice of God. And yet so often we skim over it as though it's a book we've already heard again and again. Second thought. The sight of blood causes the true believer to worship, not faint. Now, I've had a little fun thinking about this one. Some people don't go, do good with blood, do they? I'm not sure how you're going to be an Old Testament saint. <laughs> Some people faint at the sight of blood. Some people can, you know, I know of certain gals that do great with their kids, but then if there's blood from somewhere else, they have a little trouble. Can you imagine being in the Old Testament and fainting at the sight of blood? I think there was a difference because as a little boy or a little girl, as a Hebrew, you would see this over and over. And blood was always part of the sacrifice. And so you, you, and it's so hard for us to get our mind around this Hebrew lifestyle that was there. Blood was part of their daily life and sacrifice. And so blood always taught them that God was getting an offering that day when they saw blood at the temple. And so it's, it was precious. The sight of blood caused a true believer to worship. They said, God has made a way for me to have a relationship with him. Yes, it was temporary. Yes, I'll have to do it again. But, but he's made a way. And so I think it was extremely worshipful to them. Look at verses 26 through 27. You're not to eat any blood, either the bird or the animal or any of your dwellings. Any person who eats the blood, even the person, even that person shall be cut off. There it is, that excommunication from his people. Blood was set apart to represent a life poured out for atonement. This is very important to them. Very important to God. This, that represented an innocent animal, something that didn't deserve to die, died in your place, and it was poured out for your atonement. So God gives strict orders for blood. It's not to be consumed. He did not want you taking that lightly. And how often was the sacrificial system done? I mean, it was daily. The Bible of Hebrews says daily they were offering sacrifices in the temple. The blood just flowed there. But for us, as New Testament believers in the, under the New Covenant, we, we see Calvary in this, don't we? We see the blood flowing from Calvary. And we see God's graciousness displayed to this nation of Israel that now they have the ability to be forgiven by somebody else's blood. 
But you and I, we look to the cross, and though theirs was temporary, it was looking forward. And so that sight of that sacrificial blood, for, the, for those who knew their Bible, knew that God was bringing a deliverer, right? Knew God's word. And we know that that's Jesus. It leads them back to God time and time again. I think blood, somewhere along the line in some churches, got to be a little idolistic. And they started worshiping the actual blood and what it meant. But it is precious to us, isn't it? To the world, it just seems so foreign. The early church was persecuted because the Romans and other people thought they were drinking blood when they took communion. Blood represents everything to us, doesn't it? It represents that I'm forgiven. And it's a reminder to the nation as they looked at this blood flow that God desired to reconcile them. So we're not to consume, they were not to consume blood. It's, it's a precious illustration of atonement, but it's also something the pagans did. Did a little reading on this, and it was just part of ritual worship of, of pagan gods to drink blood and let it roll down your mouth and do all kinds of crazy things that some people still do to this day, I guess. It was a pagan, pagan ritual. But to the Hebrew, it, was me, it meant that somebody else's blood paid for your relationship with God, albeit temporarily, and this would be done again. It was very precious to them. And it's precious to God because First Peter says that the blood of Christ was precious to him. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. Because we have a far greater view of the blood, don't we, um, in Jesus Christ. Here in Leviticus, it's a shadow, right? It's a shadow of things to come. But it's a shadow of the final atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Really should read the whole chapter 9 and 10, but I don't have time, so verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, boy, Full fulfillment of everything in Leviticus is found in Jesus Christ. He entered through a greater, more perfect tabernacle. The other one made with skins and poles and so forth was nice, but it was a picture of something greater. And that's where Jesus, when he went to the heavens, not made with, uh, with hands, that is to say, not of his creation. And look at this, and not with the blood of goats, goats and calves. Now, let's just stop right there. If you're, if you're in Leviticus, if you're there in Sinai, if you're there with Moses, that blood of goats and calves was extremely important to you. That was the way you were going to have a relationship with that God up there who's full of fire and thunder. <laughs> and so it was important. But it was a shadow of things to come. And notice how the writer of Hebrews says, but through his own blood... Goats and calves held off the wrath of the God and it allowed Old Testament saints, true Old Testament saints, had their faith that God could deliver them. They had their faith in Him. It was good and it held off His wrath. But there was one coming, and this is the shadow, but, but through His own blood, that's so important. See, blood is precious to believers. And notice He enters the holy place once for all, year after year, we'll get to this in Leviticus chapter 16, year after year, these priests make their way in there. And as time went on, they tied bells on, their, on the hems of their garments and ropes to them because if they weren't right with God, they died in there and had to drag them out. And this happened uh, repeatedly. But notice this little phrase, once for all, this was it. This is the perfection of Christ. This is, this is his absolute perfection in his finished work that we always talk about that he enters into the very throne room of God. And notice this, what he's got in his hands, he has our eternal redemption. Wow. What a statement. They had to do it every year, and, and then there were offerings and sacrifices throughout the year, and different peace offerings, and wave offerings, and heave offerings, and, and so forth, as they desired to have a right relationship with God. God made a way for them to get there, but this was it. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, sprinkling those who have been defiled 
had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, if that worked. <laughs> and it did. Don't miss that in verse 13. I wrote in my Bible. It did. They obeyed God, and it held off his wrath for that year. They were able to have a right relationship. When it, 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 don't, don't dismiss this. This was God's plan in the Old Testament. It was pointing to something greater, but it worked in the Old Testament for them. But, but it wasn't the final plan, right? Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ? Oh, my goodness. The blood of goats and calves could hold the wrath of God off that year. And this is where we go back to the previous verse. The blood of Christ holds it off for eternity. See the immense work of Jesus Christ? <laughs> See how great his once and for all death is? Does that want to make you live for him? Doesn't that want to make you confess sin and say, oh God, why am I living with this? Notice who through the eternal spirit, there's eternal redemption, there's an eternal spirit, offers himself. Take me, God. Blood of goats and calves can't go on any longer. It had its purpose. It's pointed to me. Now take me. Take my blood. Wow. And notice it cleanses even your conscience from dead works. And look at this verb here. To serve the living God. We're slaves and servants of the Most High. It's not a bad word. We embrace our slavery to Christ, our slavery to His righteousness. As you work your way, oh, it's actually stay there. I want to go to chapter 10. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, this is one of the great warning patches, and guess what he's going to use to help warn us? Therefore, brethren, since we have, conf uh, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now that confidence means that at any point, anywhere, as I prayed this, we started this off this morning, this evening, I said that any place, anytime, anywhere, we can walk into the presence of God. That's confidence in Jesus Christ and his finished work. I have confidence in him. I don't have confidence in me. I have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now since we have that confidence, and notice it's by a new and living way, that's the new covenant, Right? which he inaugurated for us through the veil as he took it in. It goes back to the passage in Hebrews 9, right? That is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with sincere heart. Pull near to the Lord. What do we always do when we're in sin? We try to pull away, don't we? We try to justify things. We, we make a mess of stuff. He says, since this is true, pull near to him with a full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled. There's the idea. There's that Old Testament language, right? Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Such Old Testament terminology applied to the work of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Man, we've got to stop wavering. Church is wavering. America needs a church that stands on the scripture. Stop wavering, church. We hold to God's word, all of it, or we hold to none of it. What a great testimony to the world. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So God allows a little pandemic and flicks it into our, our nation and our church scatters, Right? He's exposed us, what our love is, and our love for our own flesh, and our love for our own lives, right? But he says, consider one another. Be together, stimulate one another. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's the habit of some. Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, the day coming. That's the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And you're going to, people think this is a loss of salvation. No, this is showing you weren't saved. It's a warning passage. 
If you keep sinning, even though Christ shed his blood for you, carried it into the Holy of Holies, and you keep sinning, you keep living that life, you prove yourself that there's no sacrifice that can save you. Because if Christ's sacrifice isn't enough, there's nothing coming behind that. And it's a warning passage, isn't it? And notice verse 27, but a terrifying ex, uh, expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adver- adversary. Oh, we can just keep going. Verse 29, how much more severe the punishment do you think? Of someone who has tasted is the idea, has heard the gospel, but has abused the gospel. Oh, see why we prayed for the church today? This is a problem, isn't it? Matthew 7, 6, as you turn back to Leviticus 7, Jesus said, do not give what is holy to the dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, for they will trample them under their feet and they will turn and tear you to pieces. <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a passage about the gospel, how the gospel is being handled. The pearl and the preciousness of the gospel. And people are just playing with it like you play with pigs. It's not valuable. Third, I got to get moving here. Rejoice with assurance in the final atonement of Jesus Christ, your peace offering. You can rejoice in assurance. I really want you to rejoice in assurance in Jesus Christ because he's your final peace offering. The true gospel always grants you assurance when you hang on to the true gospel, when you believe that you've come God's way, not your way. You don't abuse his grace in some way. You, you trust in it as your only hope and you come to him. There's great assurance. Look with me at 28 and 29 as we turn back to Leviticus 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, he keeps this, these conversations are happening in the ten of meetings. And, and Moses is hearing God speak. He says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. So the Lord wants this peace offering. In other words, he who comes to present a peace offering as his sacrifice needs to bring the required parts, <laughs> the fat. He wants that. Meaning he wants your inner person. So though the worshiper is in view here in this passage, now we're going to start seeing the priest and the role of the priest in his heart um, coming into this. In chapter 8 next week, we'll see the concentration of the the priest here um, next. But look at verse 30 and 31 with me. His uh, His own hand are to bring the offering by fire to the Lord, and he shall bring the fat with the breast. And that breast shall be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. Verse 31, the priest shall offer it up. So now you see the handoff of the worshiper and the priest. So this is a real change, and eight's going to really expound on the role of the priest here. But, but now we see the worshiper handing off his offering to the priest. And the priest shall offer up the fat in the smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And so here this, this worshiper now has brought with his own hands this fat. And this breast of this meat from this animal. And, and look, the true follower of God desired fellowship. We're going to meet some of these people. I can't wait. Some of the Old Testament people sit down and have a cup of whatever you're going to drink up there. Um, tell me what it was like. Did you, did you go to the temple with worshiping heart? I mean, tell me. Tell me about your struggle. I, I, I don't know if we'll have this conversation or not, but it's fun to think about in this age. Uh, maybe here a, a, a seasoned Hebrew who really truly loved God and believed his commands and how important, how important it was that they came and did things God's way because they loved him. You can kind of see this is the idea of the way God presents it, right? They're coming with the eternal, the eternal love of God and it's, and it's most precious and they're bringing that. And the fact, again, represents that deep-seated desire, affection for God. But notice now there's, there's a breast meat that's giving here. And it's connected with the fat because that piece of meat's closest to the heart, I think. I think that's why. There's probably some other reasons. But then notice you see that this breast piece is given to the priest. And it's first declared as an act of worship to be reconciled to God. 
But now, as a peace, it's offered as a peace with God and to show the worshipers gratitude and love, but also it's given now to the priest to show, show his affection or thankfulness for the mediator, right? This mediator is going to offer this for me, but he gets to take this meat and feed himself with it. And certainly this is just a foreshadowing act of the Redeemer um, of, of Jesus Christ representing the high priest and how he secures our joy and our reconciliation. But notice in verse, verse 30, it's to be a wave offering. And I think this is fascinating. And I read a lot on this, and there were several different views of what happens. We'll get to it a little more in Leviticus 10. But I think the idea is the priest was to take this breast meat and wave it east to, east to west and north to south and, and, and symbolically saying to all the ends of the earth, this is a witness that this offering has been given for this worshiper that they desire to be right with a sovereign God who, ha- who controls everything east to west, north to the south. <laughs> what a great statement. Maybe some of you need to bring a hamburger on Sunday morning before you come in. Okay, God. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious today. I'm coming in serious. I'm not going to be thinking about work and all the issues I have going in my life. I'm come to worship. You know, I, I don't know what you need to do. Most likely that's just prayer and saying, God, help me take Sunday morning seriously so I can live for you on Monday mornings. Verse 31, notice the breast should be, belong to Aaron and his sons. I think this is a lesson intended to teach Israel, and I think to, according to the New Testament as well, that God desires uh, for certain people to give up their secular occupations and devote themselves to the ministry of God's word. I think it's very clear here. It helped, and it's supported by these free will peace offerings that are given. Let me, Paul uses very Old Testament terminology. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll get to this in time in our Sunday morning series, but you've got to see the language. Now that you know Leviticus a little better, look at the language that's in here. First Corinthians 9, 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? I mean, he's bringing this Old Testament principle right here. Don't you know this? I was here for a year and a half and I taught the Pentateuch to you. (laughs) You know this, he's telling them. Look at verse 14. So also the Lord directs those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Why is he doing that? We talked about this last Saturday, this last Sunday. Because they're not giving to them. The richest church is not giving anything to the apostles. And remember, remember the text Sunday? He's homeless, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's dregs. Somebody texted this week and said, how's the dregs doing, brother? I said, we're hanging it, we're wiping stuff off our boots and moving along, right? So that's, this is how they looked at him. By the way, look at those rest of those verses in that passage. I can't wait to preach them on Sunday. Um, they're fascinating. But, but here we already have a principle as you turn back to Leviticus chapter 7 is, hey, God asked these priests not to have land, not to have a heritage, that they were to devote themselves to give up of their vocation, um, which is difficult. Some of us stepped off horses and did different things to walk into the ministry when we, when we felt we were providing our own way. That was a hard thing to do for some of us. Trusting that God's people would give and you would make it. That's a huge step of faith when you go in the ministry. But God says, no, I want these men set apart. I'm not giving them any inheritance. I'm not giving them any land. They're going to be under your care. And as you worship me, they'll be cared for. Find a church that doesn't worship well, they don't take care of their pastor well. It just kind of goes hand in hand. Look at verse 32 through 34. You shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offering. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat, the right thigh, shall be his, shall be his as his portion. Verse 34, for I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh, off, thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offering and have given it to them, to Aaron the priest and his sons, as their due forever for the sons of Israel. Well, here this breast meat was given... But you go, why the thigh? <laughs> I had to think about this one for a little while and do some reading. 
Well, why that thigh? We're going to get into later where they believe that um, the angel of the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate Christ, touches the hip of Jacob. But here, it's more the idea of this thigh is, this right thigh holds the weight of the animal. It's, the, it's strong, right? And so here God says this represents this animal's strength. And to give that was saying, in a way, this is an act of dependency on the Lord. And so the worshiper, in essence, was saying, here is my person, body and soul. May my heart and, and my strength willingly see you as my redeemer, one who can reconcile me. And so it looked to the strength of that. So this right thigh was given to the priest to sustain them because they were called into the ministry and yet, once again, there seems to be a foreshadowing here of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In this peace offering. His, his, think about this. His complete submission to the Father's grand design of redemption, Christ presents himself as the peace offering. And listen, brothers and sisters, we should take great comfort in our security that our peace offering is in Christ, who, who took all of the weight, who he and the Father in their counsel and purpose and love acted together. And there's such an importance here that, that, that Christ takes the weight of that. And it was to be given to be nourishing to the priest. So much more to be said on that, but my time is escaping. Look at number four with me. The believer priests live in light of their forgiveness. The believer priests, that would be us, live in light of their forgiveness. But let me use the Old Testament here as we go along, verse 35 and 36. This is what, excuse me, this is that which is consecrated to Aaron and that which is consecrated to his sons from the offering by the fire of the Lord in the day when he present them to serve as priests to the Lord. These the Lord had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in that day that he anointed them. It is their due forever throughout their generations. These verses sum up a lot of the preceding verses, the anointing. Um, of Aaron and his sons and then look forward to chapter 8. We'll get into that more. But here we begin to see the privileges and duties of these anointed men um, that are given to, to them to serve God in this unique way. And what God has been doing all along with the law and now with Aaron and his sons is he has been explaining the office and duty of the person before they actually enter it. <laughs> I go, we haven't even started this. Remember, they're still not doing this yet. This is now handed down from God to Moses. They're not doing this. But before it ever happens, God has given a full explanation. So God tells the priests what their work shall be and what their benefits are before he consecrates them to the office, which will be more defined in chapter 8. But I think that's just like God to display the gospel before we received it. Uh, many of us, before we were saved, heard the gospel, right? He's always done that. Genesis chapter 3 is a very, very clear picture of the gospel. And we're not sure anybody's saved then, right? God always gives out his truth ahead of time. So God's setting forth before the sinner a shadow of a full provision that will be completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's exhibiting, he's really exhibiting the 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 ease of his yoke, right? Jesus in Matthew 11 says, you know, take my yoke. Um, take my burden. Now, this is, of course, even before the cross, but it's, it's all looking forward to that. But, but when I thought about this, I thought, Lord, to bear your sins and not have any way to reconcile with you as an Old Testament saint, that would have been overbearing, so even in the Old Testament, God made a way where the burden was not terribly heavy. They could come to God. They could offer the way he told them, and they could have a right relationship with him. Does that make sense? I'm seeing this way deeper than I've ever seen it before. I'm seeing the graciousness of God in Leviticus like I've never seen it before. I thought, oh, Lord, you made a way. You were so kind to them. Can you imagine being an Israelite looking at that mountain going, yeah, we're toast, that's what you would think until God begins to speak and say, no, no, I got a great plan. How you can be right with me and it's pointing forward to even a better one. That's grace. That's the grace of God. And he's doing that to put on display his love for his people. 
And he does this throughout the scriptures. You can trace the hand of God and his kindness to his elect all the way through the scriptures. Look at verse 37. This is the law of the burnt offering and the grain offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering and the ordination offering and the sacrifice of peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses at Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Here the priests are given charge, right? We're about ready to see that in chapter 8. They're given charge to do this. They're to make no changes. Notice that in verse 37. Don't make any changes to my command. (laughs) Don't change how you're supposed to sacrifice and and how you're supposed to observe. We're going to see in Leviticus chapter 10, what happens? What's that guy's name? What are their names? Nadab and Abihu. What did they offer? Strange fire. God says, you're done. I mean, he, he says, look, don't change this. This is what verse 37 is about. I'm giving you my perfect command. Don't mess with it. And that's really gracious of God because now we know how to come, right? I think it's very gracious the way God has laid out that there's a way to God. There's not many different ways to go try to figure out your own or do something different than the other guy. He's given us a clear way to do, come to him. It's through Jesus Christ because he is the truth and the way and the life, right? But that's the gospel, isn't it? John said in chapter 20, verse 31, he said, these things have been written to you so that you may believe. Don't change them. Don't mess with them. Don't twist them. Don't make them out to be um, some kind of excuse or some way you want to handle things. Believe, and, and that's how you come to me. And that believing, you may have eternal life. See, the Lord just leaves no doubt of how to come to him. So God doesn't change his mind because he's perfect in all that he does. So he's absolutely in need of no change, thus he's immutable. John 14, 2, remember this. He tells them in the end of 13, I'm going to die. They start freaking out. He says, hold on, hold on. Peace I, leave, peace I give you, peace I leave with you. Um, he begins to tell them he's going to return. But in the middle of that, in John 14, 2, he says this. If it were not so, I would have told you. I really learned to love that phrase. And I think I've got to use it more in counseling. When somebody says, well, I think we can do this. Well, if it were so, he would have told you. That's not what he told you to do. You think that's good, good counsel? Well, well, I don't think that's the way we should do it. Well, I'm trying to be really loving and caring with you, but <laughs> if it were not so, he would have told you. Here's what he says about marriage, life, raising kids, um, living in a, a perverse generation, right? He's given us instructions of how to live, and if it was something different, he would have told us. And so he tells the disciples, yeah, that's the way it's going to go down. I'm going to die. You're going to all flee, but then I'm going to come get you. And if it was different than that, I would have told you. What a great, what a great counseling verse. If it were not so, I would have told you. This is what the Bible says. Take, I mean, if we take a hard, fast rule and say, I'm going to read the Bible this way. This is what God says. This is what I'm going to do. Boy, good things would happen. Notice in verse 38, again, he gives the reminder of how God desires to receive atonement from sinners. He desires this. He wants to bring them back into a right relationship, although temporarily, because the Savior's coming, he wants that. And so God's making known the need of atonement in light of the awfulness of sin. Remember, just not very long before this passage, they're bowing down to a golden bull calf, right? In utter, godless, sickening sin to what God just did for them and released them from slavery. I mean, they knew the awfulness of their sin. And now here's this holy God saying, hey, you bunch of calf worshipers, I got a way for you to be right with me. This is just gracious God, isn't he? Just forgiving. Now the whole entire nation has received, and they can apply this, and they can know how to be right with God. What grace. And, oh, brothers and sisters, may we not forget that we, too, were in the wilderness of sin. We were there. And it's the same God who comes and reveals his son and his word so we can have an eternal relationship with him. Stop wandering around out there. You're going to die in the desert. Come to God. He has a promised land for us. Just like the law awakened the nation 
So the word of God wakens us to the hiddenness of our sin at times. And you have a, you have a great redeemer. As I begin to wind this up, so much more of my notes, but I keep reading, I read through the Old Testament just like you and New Testament and so forth, but I, I'm in the Psalms in many places and I keep running into these precious Psalms. Let me, let me read you one that really struck me this week after studying this. Psalm chapter 4, verse 5. This is David. He says this, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. And now listen to this phrase. And trust in the Lord. Now, understand I've been studying, putting my mind around Leviticus, which is a challenge with my mind. I don't know about yours. Um, getting my mind around this. And then I come to Psalms 4 and I read this. And David says, Offer up sacrifices of righteousness. I thought, David understood. This is why he was a man after God's own heart, because he came God's way. And even when he fell into what we would call great sin, as, as Brian did such a good job in, in Psalms 51 uh, a few Sundays ago, he, he fell into grave sin, but he knew the right way back to God. And he bent his knee and came God's way. And he makes, this, he makes this statement, offer the sacrifice of righteousness and trust in the Lord. I think if we're going through the Bible, we would probably be marking trust in the Lord, but we would skip over the sacrifice of righteousness, wouldn't we? Because, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. It's not. We're still making sacrifices with our lips to the Lord and with an innermost person. We offer our hearts and our lives to the Lord daily. Brian stirred my heart as he went through Psalms 51. He came to verse 19 and down, or I came to it. One of the ways I got thinking about this, Brian, he said, then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices. He, you know, he, he knows that the blood of bulls and calves and all that's not going to appease God forever. That's a temporary position, but it's, made, it's, it's there to help me understand this righteous, glorious God who is attainable. And after he says, if I'd have done that, I would have given it to you. He says, so I delight in your righteous sacrifices. He delights in them. Now he looks after he's repented and turned from sin, and he has a broken spirit over his sin. Now he sees those offerings and whole burnt offerings, he says, as beautiful. Young bulls will be offered on your altar. He sees that as glorious. He says, this gives me hope to, to meet Old Testament saints. So this means that even in the Old Testament, their sacrifices were presented in a right way. God was pleased with them. He made a way. That Psalms 4 passage, the context is that there's this godly man and he's set apart for the Lord um, and, and he set apart a particular treasure for him. And whenever that treasure seems to be in trouble, he set himself aside from God, rushes into his aid, right? His, his life is a treasure for God, and he, he offers it up. But when that, that treasure's in trouble and there's those who hate him, press around him, he, he runs to the Lord and he finds safety there when he's in trouble. And the one who offers up a sacrifice of praise from, from a forgiven, pure heart, Old Testament, New Testament, sees a holy awe of God. And that one searches now the innermost recesses of their heart and says, oh God, there's sin here. I repent of that. I confess that and I turn from it. And they are glad as they look into the gaze of God. They're not afraid of him. They're not afraid of the God on the mountain. He's, he's now their savior in a sense. What amazing truth. Back to Psalms 51. Stimulated my thinking on this, Brian. He says, you do not delight, verse 16 and 17, in sacrifices. Otherwise, I'd give you. <laughs> you don't, you're not pleased with burnt offerings because the heart isn't right. Sacrifices of a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. Oh God, you do desire. So David experiences the depth of forgiveness. He marvels at grace because he's forgiven. He saw the depth of his wicked sin and he's forgiven. Later, probably David wrote Psalms 116, we're not sure, verse 12, but whoever it is says this, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What am I going to give him? Bulls, cows, goats, blood, what am I going to give him? What can I render to God for such benefits he has towards me? There's nothing that can repay this free love and flowing grace that you've given me. 
So I think David looks at all of this, and I, and I went to him as an example, because Brian got me thinking about this, and I think what he's saying, for, for you don't desire sacrifice, or I would have gave them to you. If you want just mere lambs or bulls were sufficient of them, I got lambs all over. I would have given you all my flock. I would have given you all the oxes in, my, in the stalls. I would have spared none of them if I could have gained your forgiveness. But that's not what you want, David says. There's a better offering. There's a better offering. Get this. It's a broken and contrite heart. David knew that. In the Old Testament, he knew that when we humbled ourselves and bent the knee to God and realized what he had accomplished on our behalf, he knew it was way better than the sacrifice. That sacrifice was to get your attention and draw yourself how it was going to come to God. It was a foreshadowing of Christ, but he knew that should lead to a broken heart. So think about, I hope there's many Israelites that we'll meet who love God and they came with a broken heart. And yes, they brought that unblemished lamb and they, they, they were there as the priest slit its throat and the blood went out and it, and it broke their heart that this lamb had to die on their place. And, and, they, and they pleaded with God, oh, forgive me. I've come your way. And they were granted that forgiveness. Romans 4, Paul uses the patriarchs, Abraham and David, to prove salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, not through their works. He speaks of David in chapter 4, verse 5, and he says, But to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's what David believed. And Brian did such a great job of that. It's, it's such a reminder that God forgives and he accredits righteousness even where it's not deserved. But he grants the faith to believe that. So just as David also spoke of the blessings, now he turns to Psalms 32, that God had accredited this righteousness apart from works. He said, blessed are those who lawless deeds have been forgiven. He uses the word lawless I broke the law, I murdered, committed adultery, <laughs> lied to the nation, right? He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed, listen to this, is the man, woman, child, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What beauty is this? Five, just closing just to wrap this all up and put it around Christ, Ephesians 5 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Listen to this. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So when we look at these sacrifices and study this, we go, All right, Lord, where's my role to display Jesus Christ? Husband. Father church member, godly person in this world. Those are all Jesus, right, in a sense, right? Ephesians 5 tells husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. He is our example. Wives, you're to adore Christ. You're to adore his church. You adore Christ, so you adore his church, so you adore his husband. And if you don't adore your husband, it's really clear you probably don't adore the church. I mean, he makes that connection there, husbands and with Christ and wife with the church, but it's all centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we'll get to in time in 1 Corinthians 12, man, the body of Christ is what we, rep we represent. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I gotta quit. Oh, this is good stuff, isn't it? All in the end of Leviticus, right? What, 12 verses? Father, thank you for your graciousness to us. Um, Thank you that we can read the book of Leviticus and be blown away by the glory of Christ. <laughs> Whew. You're good, God. You look at wretched sinners and desire to reconcile them and not leave us to our just due penalty. You have always faithfully brought us to yourself whether it's a, a sinful couple in the garden who you slay an animal to cover them with its skin, all the way down to each one of us who by your sovereign grace receive faith to believe, confess, and repent and walk with you. You prove that you are reconciling God. So Lord, help us be people who have the ministry of reconciliation. 
always reconciling. Reconciling with one another, being ministers of reconciliation, teaching other people how they can be right with God. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the ultimate final sacrifice for us. In his name, our Lord and Savior, we say amen.